calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, that's, that's really a hard question. I guess I would say to perhaps um, the third, I mean, this is sort of my darkest moment when I was a graduate student at Yale and studying philosophy, and I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. I wanted to write, and I was combining philosophy and literature. And I would tell him to chill out. I would tell him to take a deep breath and focus on what you can do well and stop tormenting yourself with uh, fanciful ideas that propel you to to places that, that really lead nowhere and lead to a black box. Uh, because I, I feel that young Sergio in graduate school tortured himself so much to the point that, you know, I had to, and I'll, I'll admit it, but I've, I've sort of written about it, I had to pull myself back from a ledge. Uh, you know, not just metaphorically. Yeah. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam After Party, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today, bringing back an old friend, one of my favorite interviews that I've done. Uh, you do this show long enough, you interview enough people. There are times, I think I've talked about this before, there are times that interviews just flow. Sometimes it's because you have similar backgrounds. Sometimes it's because there's a Venn diagram, and while you may have done some different things, they sort of fall into the same general realm. And other times you just connect with people. And Sergio and I have did all three of those. The first time I had him on the program, his when his book, the last book he edited, uh, Napantla Familias, came out. And so when his latest came out, I don't remember who reached out to me, but I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely, Sergio's coming on the show. So, I've, I've spoiled it. Sergio Troncoso is here today. His latest book is Nobody's Pilgrims, and it's an adventure story about three teenagers on the run from evil and unwittingly carrying an even greater menace in their stolen truck. He's written several books, 
a particular kind of immigrant son. I edited in the Pont La Familias, as I said, um, which received a starred review in Kirkus. He's a Fulbright scholar, went to Yale. If you really want the whole story, you can go check out the jam interview we did with him. We spent a lot of time on his childhood and growing up and his journey, which is one worth listening to. He's the president of the Texas Institute of Letters, um, teaches at the Yale Writers Workshop. He's just an all-around great guy. It's a fun conversation. He's very thoughtful. Not that everybody else isn't. Right? You say things like that, and it makes it seem like everybody else isn't thoughtful. But he's just a really... He's lived a life, and uh, he's a great dude to talk to. And I was super excited to do this weird-ass Q&A that you're about to listen to. As you know, we're part of the Solid Listen Network. We have 12 shows. You can get all of them commercial-free before they come out, plus a bunch of other shows if you subscribe to our Patreon. You can do that either by heading over to the Solid Listen Podcast Network site or head over to the Writer's Jam website. There's a couple things you can do for us. If you like what you're listening to, tell your friends about us. Book lovers, book kind of lovers, people that might want to love books, tell them about what we're doing. And leave us a review, either over at Apple Podcast if you have an iPhone or an iPad, or if not, head over to the Facebook page, The Writer's Jam, click on the review button there and leave us a review, which is what you would do if you clicked on the review button. All of that helps us, helps us spread the word about what we're doing. And more importantly, it helps authors get the word out about what they're doing, which is ultimately why we're here in the bunker. I'm very glad you stopped by. I hope you're doing well. I hope the fall weather is still treating everybody nicely. Really appreciate you taking time. The Q&A is maybe my favorite of the three shows we do. And I appreciate you stopping by to listen to the ridiculousness that it is. And now, sit back, grab a drink. If you're in the car, grab your coffee. And enjoy my conversation with Sergio Troncoso. Why do you write? I, you know, my answer is straightforward. I write to give voice to people who don't have a voice, especially the people and characters and stories of uh, of people along the border, along the U.S.-Mexico border, but not not exclusively so. It's also outsiders. I think as I've gotten older, anybody who's an outsider, uh, who's working class, who is not supposed to be at a place like Harvard and Yale, or is not supposed to have any success. I, w- I want to pay attention to them. Yeah, I want to pay attention to their stories. You know, the the guy uh, redoing the sidewalks right out here in the Upper West Side, uh, who is a Mexican immigrant, and everyone ignores him, and he's doing the sidewalks in front of the Victoria's Secret mega store. Yeah, and and everybody needs those sidewalks, but everybody ignores him. They just walk right over him. Yeah, it's the first place. The first people that I get to know in every new job is always the custodial and janitor staff. Right. I'm like, uh, you know, in fact, when we came back this semester, it's the first time I've been back on campus in a few years. A couple of them came in my office for like two hours and we were like, what's been going on for two years? (laughs) You know, and I don't know if other people in the building do that. I don't ask. But like 
they came right into my office, right? Yeah. They saw me and they're like, oh shit, Brant's here. Let's chat. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think when you grow up poor, of course, yeah. you, it never leaves you. Yeah. You know, even, you know, though I have a nice apartment and even uh, a weekend house and all of that, but it never leaves you that you were like them. Uh, okay. Here's the second one. This is my favorite writer question. So what's the question or statement people say to you about writing that drives you crazy? And what do you say to them? But what do you really want to say to them? <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm, 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 I've been thinking about this. my students. When my students say I teach at the Yale Writers Workshop, and when they say, and, I, and I, I'm reading one of their stories or essays, and I tell them, you know, this doesn't sound uh, believable or real, or this character does not seem true. And they respond, but this really happened. And so that that I think idea that simply because it happened and that they put some version of it on the page, yeah, that it's supposed to have all of the craft and all of the you know uh, modulation of, of 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 sentences and rhythms and 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 words that make it believable on the page. There's, yeah. Right. There's one thing that it happened in real life. Yeah. It's another thing if it had reality on the page. Yeah. And so I think that that I think always uh, it gets me a little pissed off, but it's not it, it's not terribly pissed off. I know what they're saying. Yeah. Um, and they, another, don't, they don't understand what writing is yet. Writing they is don't for, understand yeah. what the craft of writing yeah. is, which is shaping those words and and every single phrase so that. It, it's leading to a point in the character where, where the reader buy in. For most readers, for most yeah. the normal intelligent reader yeah. will buy in. Um, and, and I think also like you know other the other thing that sometimes drives me nuts is people say, oh well, you know I want to write a novel, and they're like a banker or they're like yeah. a lawyer, and they've never taken a creative writing class, and they they think writing is just simply typing on the page. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about your students though because. I mean, I always tell folks there's like if you're a, if people when people read memoirs, nonfiction stuff, I tell readers, I'm like, you don't know that person. That is a fictionalized version of right. who they were. And they're taking certain strands of a life to put together to tell a story. So, yes, it happened, but it doesn't. It only had meaning afterwards. It, it wasn't right. like that was a it wasn't a story they were telling along the way. It's a story they're telling backwards and right. that's a small part of their life absolutely and and of course they, even in a memoir you're remembering and you yeah. have that sort of rose-colored glasses of memory you know you don't remember often the ugly things or the bad things and yeah. you try to prettify things so even memory is a false oh, reality yeah. in a in a way uh, the most interesting memoir that i've never read but i've heard about it was uh david carr's night of the gun Mm -hmm. uh, where he went and re-reported this night where he, I believe it's, he thought somebody pulled the gun on him, but in his like drug and alcohol fueled, whatever, he was actually the one with the gun. And the whole story was about how he didn't remember this thing that made him stop whatever drinking or doing drugs. Right. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting thing to, to be a reporter and to go report the story that you thought happened that you did and then to be completely wrong about it. Right. No. And, and I think that stuff happens all the time. I mean, I've, I've written essays on sort of an experience I had uh, as an intern uh, in Washington, DC when I was at Harvard and I showed it to a friend of mine 
who's uh, also a Washington Post uh, editorial writer. And he said, you know, some of the details you got were a little off. Uh, you know, I, you know, I may have seen, you know, he told me I may have seemed like I was from a sort of a rich family, but in fact, my father was, you know, very much of a middle-class guy, et cetera. And so my view yeah. of these white kids <laughs> who were at Quincy house at Harvard, yeah, simply because they were white and they seemed outwardly very well together inside, they were terrified as terrified as I was. Yeah. And, in, and as, as, probably as as uh, outsider-ish as I was. And, but yet I saw them, you know, because I came from the border as being gods. Yeah. And of course they didn't see themselves this way. Uh, okay, here's the third one. Okay. Uh, every writer, most writers, many writers have had that one review, right? The one review that just you sort of think about. What is yours? I mean, the one review that somebody reviewed of my work? Mm-hmm. You know that's that, and it couldn't it be a blurb or is it can be anything? Review? You know, I would say the most startling for me that one review of my work was from um, Juno Diaz. You know, Juno Diaz is somebody I um, I love his short stories, and of course he's now on the outs and probably hiding. I don't know what's happening because of his, uh, you know, the Me Too accusations and all of that. Um, but I, and I don't know him really. I, I, you know, he had won the Pulitzer prize and, um, and I sent him the manuscript of a peculiar kind of immigrant son, which was a short story collection before uh, nobody's pilgrims, my, my latest novel. And, and I, I had no, you know, I had no clue. I didn't, I, I don't think I had, maybe I'd met him once for like five minutes and he treated me sort of like shit just kind of moved on you know i mean and, and somebody like him he's when he's ever in any place it's like flies to to yeah. meet they, everyone wants a piece of him so you know I, and maybe i would act the same way but he wrote back he said sergio and he wrote this long email said this is a masterwork oh nice this is you know the best thing you've ever written and and he gave me probably the biggest and most important blurb I've ever gotten. And this was from somebody I didn't know. He's not a friend. Um, he didn't have to even read it. And uh, and I used it. And so for me, that that also helped me to feel that um, that my writing was reaching a level of of craftsmanship that, that I wanted. Yeah. And you know, because sometimes you don't believe it. You've done all this work. You've read you know, hundreds of books on craft, you've toyed with and rewritten novel and story, et cetera. And you just never know, am I just spinning my wheels? Am yeah. I just wasting time? And so when, when Juno Diaz said this, this collection of stories, because of what you did with every story, with the voice, modulating the voice, changing the perspective, changing the style, he said, it's a masterwork. And so for me, that, that was a review I'd never forgotten. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, it's it's divided. About half of the people have told me really nice stories, which uh -huh. when I wrote the question was not what I had in mind. Uh, okay. And I've told folks like, uh, and the other half have given the terrible ones. And I'm like, well, that says something about me that I wrote this. <laughs> thinking well, I was going to get bad ones. And people are like telling me these lovely stories. And I'm like, that's a very healthy writer thing you just did. 
<laughs> well, I've definitely gotten terrible reviews, sure. which I feel the reviewer did not get a clue as to what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and, and it seems to be purposely twisting and misinterpreting a yeah. novel or, or a, a nonfiction book. And so I've gotten those. And for me, it feels like, you know, did they bother to read the book? Yeah. I mean, or they, they had some... an agenda when they read it. Right, right. Or like, you know, on the nature of truth, an, an early novel, my first novel, actually, somebody said, there's so much philosophy in this. And it's a philosophical novel. That's what the whole point of the novel is. Yeah. And and I just feel like, you know, this person is not even on first base. <laughs> so it's it's like, I, what can I do? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I find it interesting how people answer these questions because I had them in my head one way and just like the rest of life, it never goes exactly how I want it to. And that is that's the joy of this show for me. Uh, all right. This was a writing question. And, um, you know, I rarely talk about writing, but what is the best writing epiphany that you've ever had and how did it come about? I would say actually with this book, Nobody's Pilgrims, because I... I wanted to write an adventure story, something really fast-paced. And I wanted to focus on these three 17-year-old protagonists. And the epiphany for me was, I also wanted to write about the American dream and the crumbling American dream <laughs> and how these kids fight for it, fight to, to, to focus on their American dream. And it was about 2018, 2019, when I was writing the, the, the drafts of this novel. And the epiphany was, what would collapse this country? And for me, it was because I wanted to center the novel in a dystopian fashion on a collapsing U.S. And for me, the answer was a pandemic. And of course, this was several years before COVID. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, yeah. This was uh, several years before COVID. And so the novel that I turned in the last leap day we had, February 29, 2020, Donald Trump was president. I think there were 10 or 15 cases of COVID around. It wasn't even called COVID. The final, final draft, it was already in, in uh, advanced reading copies, was this novel in which these three kids are going across country uh, in a stolen pickup in search of their American dreams. And what's happening? The country is collapsing because of a pandemic. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so that was, you know, and, and for me and people say, well, how did you guess rightly or whatever? And it's a different kind of pandemic. It's, it's Marburg B and, and Marburg, by the way, I did a lot of research on pandemics. It, it, it was a real, the real epidemic that happened in Germany and it's transmitted by touch, not through the air like COVID. Yeah. And so through semen, blood, et cetera, touch, even sweat. And it had an 80% kill rate. Holy shit. So, so, oh, yeah. So if this had happened in the United States, you would have had hundreds of millions dead, not yeah. one million dead. So that's what's happening in Nobody's Pilgrims. And these gritty, three gritty teenagers create this bond as this country is collapsing because of a pandemic. And it was all written before COVID. In that's... fact, there was no nothing in the newspapers about COVID. That's and it, crazy. It, yeah, it didn't make me a soothsayer, but I, I don't think it's hard to think about what would collapse the U.S. Yeah. All right. Last one of this section. And it's a bookend to the first one. So the first one was, why do you write? 
the last one is what does it mean to you to be a writer? It means that you're alone with your mind primarily, not exclusively, <laughs> and that you have to really have the discipline and be happy with being alone so that you write. And then to switch your head so that then you start collaborating with people, showing it to your agent, showing it to your editors and, and improving. And so, but it primarily means being alone. My wife called me the lone wolf. And she knows I'm perfectly happy to be alone working on my stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what it means to me to be a writer, to be alone, but also intensely curious about the world. It's so a weird paradox, isn't it? It is. So it's, it's being alone, but it's not being closed minded about what's happening around you. Quite the opposite. Yeah. It, it, it's focusing on what's going on around you without getting involved in the noise of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, I've always told folks and I've said it on the show a billion times, like being a writer is being an outsider. It's standing on the edge of the room and going, how and what is that person doing? And why is this right. happening? And trying to make sense of it. Right. And what is this uproar in the room? And where is this room, this mob moving? To, yeah. You know, and, and what's what's driving them to yeah. do that? And, oh. you know, I had a fraught relationship. I was Michael Lewis's TA when I was in graduate school and I had we had a we did not like each other. Uh, wow. But he said a thing that has stuck with me forever, which is every story needs a Darth Vader. But Darth Vader never believes he's the bad guy. Right. And he's like, you can't write a story until you can write the bad guy like he thinks he's a good guy. Nonfiction fiction doesn't make a difference. The conflict can't be between a white hat and a black hat. Right. Because it's just not true right. and interesting. Right. And those characters are flat. You yeah. Know, and, that was his yeah. point. Like you can see there's nothing interesting about that. Right. And no, I it's know. true. It's true. Yeah. And and I think you have to love your your antagonist as much as you love your protagonist. I mean, you you have to, because otherwise you can and you have to, I think also I used to tell young writers, like, go live a life. Writing is the easy part. It's having the experience and the empathy and the understanding of the world because you can't write the bad guy unless you can tap into what makes him think he's a good guy. Like, it's hard to do that externally unless you can, like an actor, you have to connect in some way to the motivations and then that person becomes real. Absolutely. I think you're right. I hope so. Otherwise, I've misled a whole shitload of people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're done with this section. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back and then we're going to do my favorite part, which is all about you. So we'll be back in just a second. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Okay, so we're back. Uh, the first section was all about writing, and then this section is about you. And you, I find you fascinating, so I'm very excited <laughs> about this. All right, so here's the first question. What is it that makes you the happiest? I would say from a writer's point of view or personally? All right. How you, so answer, that, how you answer that will tell us a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the happiest is when I'm really deeply involved in a story, like a novel. And I'm not at the beginning because it, that can be a very frustrating time, but I'm in the middle of hundreds of pages and I know I'm going to get this done. And it may look completely different when I'm done, but I know I, I see the finish line. Yeah. It may be months away, but I, I, I'm, my head is hot and I'm deeply involved in these characters, whatever the novel is or whatever I'm working on. And I can, I can taste it. I can taste how it's going to be. Yeah. And I'm not quite there yet. So for me, getting lost in the story with my characters and what's going on in my novel, that's the happiest moment for me. It's almost like a moment of eternity. Yeah. I don't know if that ma- makes any sense. A hundred percent. Like the science of it is called flow, right? right? Like you're in the flow and you're just like, you exist nowhere and everywhere and time stops meaning anything. And exactly. if you haven't been in it, that shit just sounds crazy. Right. <laughs> no, it's it's true. And that, that is my happiest moment. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm just uh, so immersed in what I'm doing and I know what I'm doing and I, ju- I just have to do the work to get there. And it's just, uh, I feel like I lose track of time. And yeah. my wife says, you know, I don't come out of my office for days and, and I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want anybody to interrupt me. Yeah. And I just leave me alone. I got to get this done. Yeah. I remember when we did our first book, I remember like for the last edits, I was in my bedroom, which was also my office at the time for five days. Like I came out and went to the bathroom and I came out and got food. And otherwise I locked myself in. And when I came out, when it was done, after we had sent it to the publisher, my friend was there and she was painting my house and she asked me how I was doing. And I burst into tears went back into my bedroom because I was like, I, how do you, exp- I don't know. How do you explain what just happened? It, it's an experience. that's very unique to writers. I think so. And like, that's why I was like, Oh yeah, no, I don't understand exactly what that means. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like going to the church of writing. So yeah. All right. So in your adult life, in your adult life, so not from when you were a kid, what is the most profound way or ways that you think you've changed? Well, I hope I've gotten more patient. Uh, I, I, I had no patience for stupidity, my own stupidity or the stupidity of others. Um, I, I'm, I think the other thing on patience is, I, in, a, in a way, I've gotten more collaborative. Yeah, um, that's good. As, as a young person, uh, when I was editor of my high school newspaper, and even actually during the Texas Institute of Letters, they didn't quite say this, but I think they they sort of said it, that, that I was a little bit of a dictator <laughs> because I like things done right. 
<laughs> and I don't want to do it half-assed. I don't want to do it, you know, I'm going to just kind of put a little time, because I was giving my heart and soul to these organizations. And and so if you aren't going to put in the same time, just get the hell out of my way. Yeah. You know, and so, so for me, I hope I've gotten more patient and more collaborative as I've gotten older. Yeah. It's funny when I worked at technology review, my boss was a perfectionist. Like if like you would do the best thing you could ever do. And he'd be like, yeah, that's good. And like, that was as high as it got. There was nothing above. Yeah, that's good. And I've told people like in that place and at the Berkeley J school, uh-huh. I learned the difference between good, great, and excellent. And I learned the, what it takes to get to each of those. And a lot of what we do is good and we want it to be excellent. But there's a lot of shit that comes in between, you know, Jake, you turn something into Jason and he'd send it back and send it back and send it back. And he wasn't being vindictive. It was just like, this can be better. But can you look me in the eye and say, this is the best thing you can do. And until you can honestly say that to me, I'm going to keep sending it back to you. Right. (laughs) No, and I I think, you know, I, I go back to what it's sort of a different concept of love that I got from my parents which yeah. is similar to what you just said. For, for them, it was never, and these were both Mexican parents, never uh, pat you on the back for some stupid stuff you did. It was when you had a real accomplishment that they were impressed with, they would say, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so I knew that the, the, their expectations were very high. Yeah. And and they demanded the same thing of themselves. And I think it's this kind of sense of, well, what is love? Is love just patting you on the back for any stupid shit you do, yeah. even if it's not very good? Or is it really having these high expectations and really telling you, oh, this is okay, but you could improve it. But this is actually good once yeah. you've done the 12th revision. Yeah. All right. So I'm always interested in how people get to where they get to. So Tell me a story about a parent or a mentor or a friend, like somebody who influenced or helped shape your life. You know, I'm going to tell you the story of Womack, John Womack. And I don't know if I've told you this story before. He was a history professor, chairman of the history department at Harvard and um, Rhodes Scholar. And he walked around uh, Cambridge in cowboy boots. He was from Norman, Oklahoma. He was an Okie. <laughs> and he didn't give a shit about Harvard, but he was the, one of the most powerful Harvard professors there. And it's one of the reasons why I connected with him, because I was from the West, too. And and I didn't I certainly was not part of the Harvard crowd. Right. And when I went, I walked into his office once and I told him and I had taken every course. And he's the one who wrote a really great recommendation for me. And he was a ball buster. I mean, he would put you through the ringer in his seminar, but you learn so much. And his specialty, of course, was Mexican history. He wrote the best English language version of, of, uh, of Mexican history still, still today called Zapata and the Mexican Revolution, which was published by Knopf and won all sorts of prizes. And, and I walked into his office and I told him, um, why are there no courses on Mexican-American literature at Harvard, Professor Womack? And he said, Sergio, open up the course catalog. Why are there six Armenian literature courses here? How many Armenians do you think are at Harvard? And there are probably less than 1%. Sure. And he said, it's because a rich Armenian industrialist gave money to Harvard 
And he said, if you want my money, you got to teach these courses. Said, Sergio, what you have to do is either uh, get a, a rich Latin Americanist or industrialist or Mexican American, give money to Harvard, and then they will teach the courses you want. Yeah. And they said, Harvard is a money machine. <laughs> That's how it functions. And I never forgot that. And so from that day forward, and Yale is the same way, Princeton, et cetera, they're all, Stanford, they're all the same. From that day forward, every scholarship I got, every loan I got, including the Fulbright, I saved and I saved and I invested so that I could have a, the freedom to do the art I wanted to do. And, and I became very good at investing over time. I'm very, also very good at math. And so I taught myself accounting, apart from writing all these fiction books and, and teaching at the Yale Writers Workshop. And so that's one, one piece of advice that Womack gave me as a senior at Harvard. You know, he, what I had to do is create my own Harvard for myself yeah. so that I could keep writing the kind of work I wanted to write um, and be able to afford it, be able to live. That's I know there's people out there that will be like, well, that shouldn't be the way that it is. I will just say that was great advice he gave you. In graduate school, my wife would visit me at Yale. This is after Harvard, of course. And she said, you live like a monk. My, my bed was cinder blocks I had found on the street, a piece of plywood that I also found on the street of New Haven, and a foam uh, pad that I that I bought for like under fifty bucks, maybe yeah. twenty bucks. You got that at like Walmart. And and she yeah. said, and yet you have the biggest portfolio of investments of any grad student. And the and I told her it's because I I knew what I had to do. I'm not going to spend money on crap. Yeah. Every scholarship and you know uh, award that I got, I saved and invested it. And That's I and I didn't care what I what I wore. Right. I didn't care as long as I was fed and, and you know, I had a small little apartment in New Haven. Uh, I saved and, and I, I even, you know, as a grad student, I swept the floors yeah. of, of, uh, of the hallways of our three floor apartment so that I could get a break on my rent from my <laughs> landlord. Yeah. And for me, all of that went to the bank. Yeah. Went That's to investment. It's, I was it... poor and poverty sucks. Right. That's what I mean. Like, I want some of that money. Like, is this what exactly. I have to do to get some of that money? I will. Yes, I, I will, will do, do it. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm always I love people. I love uh, I met or how I met people's stories. So who is like the most interesting or weirdest or coolest? Like, what's the story you like to tell about meeting somebody? Well, you know, it, it, that's a that's a. I, I'm going to say somebody I met through the Internet. Um, George Saunders. No shit. Oh, yeah. Um, George Saunders, the great writer, I think the best short story writer alive right now. Um, I was president of the Texas Institute of Letters, and we inducted him. And so I started corresponding with him, uh, you know, to welcome him into the organization. He told me about his time uh, working at a slaughterhouse in Texas. Um, that's where he, he grew up. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, every exchange I had with him, and he even sent me a special video that he made just for the Texas Institute of Letters to accept his his induction into the TIL. 
and all of these exchanges for me, it's not really meeting George Saunders yeah. in person, but it's exchanging with somebody that you so revere and you know his craftsmanship is just fantastic. Um, and, and he was treating me like, you know, another writer. And I just, uh, and he was friendly and he was engaging and he asked about my work. And all, for me, that was, uh, I could, the year could not have gotten better. Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice when you meet those people and they're awesome. Oh, they're awesome. And yeah. he is awesome. He is, he's a very down to earth person, but he is an exacting writer. Yeah. I, I, I also met, I, I don't want to, I don't know if we're going over time, but yeah. I also met George W. Bush oh. once. When he was governor? Um, when he was governor of Texas. And he, I think, I'm trying to remember, uh, he was in the middle of the of the election with uh, Albert Gore. Okay, so he Al was Gore. running for president at the time. Exactly. And so I, I got invited to the Texas Institute of Letters. And, and there's a big gala the Friday night before. Everyone's dressed up in in, in a tuxedo. It's not just semi-formal. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Tucks. And the mayor of El Paso knew me and he said, Sergio, come on over. You know, I was one of and what they do is really in these galas, there's 12 big tables. They put you like a monkey, the writer monkey at one of the tables. <laughs> and everybody at that table are millionaires who don't sure. know crap about writing, but they yeah. give a lot of money to the Texas Book Festival. And so you are the writer at a certain table. And the and so the mayor called me over and said, I want you to meet the governor. He's in the middle of a presidential race. And 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 he comes up to me, George W. Bush, after the mayor introduces me, puts his arm around me and said, Sergio, I'm going to kick Al Gore's ass. <laughs> and, you know, he was like and then he started conversing and joking and he was very disarming. Yeah. You know, he was like a good guy. You could just see the pop. He, and he was just the mayor likes liked him and he liked me and. But he's a very disarming kind of yeah. friendly guy. Everybody um, who knows him and has talked to him, like they all say that kind of thing, that he's just sort of like a dude, dude. who happened to be uh, Bush. Right. <laughs> Governor and then president. Yeah. And, but like probably given his druthers would have done neither one of those two things. Right. <laughs> so that's that was what was, you know, that was sort of weird and interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. The last one is, and you, we've told some stories, so you may not have other ones, but I'm always interested in like what your favorite story to tell is. I guess, my, you know, a, a favorite story that I tell now is when, um, and I, I wrote about it. That's probably why I tell it. But we, you know, my three brothers, we had a father who worked our asses off. He believed in, in that incredible Mexican work ethic. And so, one day um, we were coming out of church and uh, I told my father and my, I'm, I'm guessing I was still in grade school, maybe seventh or eighth grade or eighth or ninth grade. I don't know, don't know exactly where, where I was. And I had an older brother and a younger brother. And I told him, no, I'm not going to go to your construction project. And, and you never told, you never yeah. told my father, no. <laughs> Um, and, and my brothers were chicken shit. They always just did what they, you know, because nobody stood up then. My mother did not. And I said, I, I have, I wanted to focus on school. I think I was writing maybe for the newspaper at that time for, as a freshman. And he threw me out of the truck and, uh, he drove home and then, 
um, and I didn't know what to do. So I, I went to the church and just kind of like, I guess I'm out. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and he was livid because I had, I had said it, especially in front of my older brother, Rudy, and my younger brother, Oscar. Oh, so yeah. So this is now like, yeah. So, so they go home with him in the truck and they <laughs> scream at my mother. Dad threw Sergio out of the truck. They threw him out of the truck. He didn't want to go work. And my mother um, had probably the worst fight of her life with my father, in which she said, she called me some terrible name. And my mother said, if you don't go get my son, I will leave you right now. You, you cannot turn every troncoso into a worker, into an obrero. You know, he wants to study. He wants to go to school. And my father, of course, nobody, you know, he was yelling at my mother, my mother, and my father went to get me. And um, and so my mother really kind of saved my ass. Um, and, and he went to pick me up at the church and I was hiding inside the church. I didn't know really what to do. I mean, like, how, what am I going to do? I'm yeah, I guess I don't have a 12. home anymore. <laughs> so anyway, so that was the story of which my mother really standing up really for to my father and my father really, you know, the, my father did teach us to work until we dropped and do it again the next day yeah. and do it again the next day. He had good intentions, yeah. but you also did not question him. Yeah. You all, you know, I called him our Mexican Stalin in an essay because that's how he was. He took yeah. us from a pre-agrarian life to a middle-class life yeah. through our blood, sweat, and tears. Well, and I'm guessing as you got older, I've told people this about some of the coaches, like Dave, the guy who called me, like people like there was nothing in the world scarier than them. Like right. when I got out in the world and things were scary, I'm like, oh, I've survived this. This is just, I don't even right. know who you are or what this is. So I'm going to be fine. Right. Like I'm assuming you had a little bit of that, like, oh, if I can survive my dad, whatever bullshit this is, is. Yeah. No. And, and, yeah. No. And, and, <laughs> and I don't think I met, I've never met anybody scarier than my father, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. because he he wouldn't give a crap. He yeah. would take it to the limit, whatever that limit was. Yeah. And you are his boys. You're going to work your ass off. Yeah. And you were not informed what the limit would be. He would tell you when that was there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So every moment was like, oh, well, I, I don't know what's happening. Right. <laughs> uh, so. Sergio, it is so good to talk to you again. You've been, you were one of my favorite interviews before. This has been absolutely lovely. Nobody's Pilgrim is out now, right? It came out in May. Yeah. It came out in May and it just won an award. Oh, Got which the one? Gold medal at the International Latino Book Awards for Best Novel, Adventure, or Drama. That's great. Congratulations. Well, I, and I even got a gold medal. Nice. <laughs> Keep that, because I feel like the economy in the nation might be collapsing. I know. So, I'm, yeah. pretty, I'm pretty freaking <laughs> yeah. thrilled I got gold now. You got some bartering uh, stuff if everything goes to hell. Yeah. Uh, well, it was great talking to you. Thank you for uh, doing this ridiculous show the, that I do. I appreciate you very much. Brad, you're tremendous. You. And I hope uh, you have a great uh, end of the summer. And thank you so much for inviting me to your show. I'm telling you what, he is just one of my favorite people. Just thoughtful, smart. I could talk to him for hours and I hope someday we actually get to sit down in person and do that. Um, because it is a thing my father told me and he, and he said this his whole life 
It's one of those things that I've carried with me after he passed. Is that when you feel a connection with somebody, you should pursue that connection because you don't know why you're having it. And it's important to find that out. Sergio is just one of those dudes I feel that with, man. Uh, that was Sergio Troncoso. His book, Nobody's Pilgrims, is out now. Uh, before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors that I talked about at the top of the show that I always talk about that some of you are lax about. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts or over at the Facebook page. Don't forget, we have 12 programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network. You can get them commercial-free and before they come out by supporting us on the Patreon. You can get that either through the Solid Listen Podcast Network site or head over to theridersjam.com. There's also bonus content, bonus shows. There's all kind of shit. Like, Malls and Nicole are always working. Always working. It's crazy. So you're going to get your money's worth. And I think it's like a dollar or $5. Like it's, it's nothing. It's just a cup of coffee. Don't forget also the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast is hosted by our solid listen podcast, Queen Molly MacLear. What you're listening to today, the Downtown Riders Jam After Party is part of the trio of shows that we release on Wednesdays. The Jam is our hour-long program. The After Party is that ridiculous Q&A you just heard. And we have Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction show. The surest way not to miss anything we do, get yourself subscribed wherever you're listening to podcasts. Like, right now. Like, do that now. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.